I would describe Jackie as a powerhouse female who is kind, funny, very smart, creative, and cares deeply about all her relationships. She's gonna engage you, inspire you to want to learn more, and help you achieve your goals. I think Jackie is there for her students in a way that is really, really special. One time, a couple years ago, I had just found out about a conference happening in just one month in Madrid. It looked perfect for the research that we were doing. And I thought, well, there's probably no way that I can go to Madrid in a month, but I'll just ask Jackie just in case. And so I told Jackie about it, and she immediately hopped on the internet and she found a plane ticket. She called up some people and found some scholarship money, and she just made it happen. And in a month, I was sitting there in Madrid at this conference doing research, and I thought, wow, I don't know that a lot of professors could have made that happen and done that for a student, and it was just so meaningful to me. Her classes are hard, but they're worth it. And if you didn't think marketing was interesting before, you certainly will afterward. This is Confluence, where great ideas flow together, a podcast of the Graduate School of the University of Montana. On Confluence, we travel down the tributaries of wisdom and beauty that enrich the soil of knowledge on our gorgeous mountain campus. You just heard the voices of Mary McCreese and Carmen Thiessen, graduate students in UM's master's program in business administration, talking about our guest on this week's episode, Dr. Jackie Moore. Jackie is a professor in the Department of Management and Marketing in UM's College of Business. In 2008, she was named Regents Professor, the highest faculty rank at UM. I'm your host, Ashby Kinch, Dean of the Graduate School. Every episode, we ask our guests to read a poem or a short passage from literature about rivers. Jackie will read a passage from Henry David Thoreau's A Week on the Concord and Merrimack Rivers, published in 1849 but based on a trip he took with his brother John to the White Mountains in 1839. From there, we'll jump into the current of conversation, where we discuss Jackie's journey to UM, her recent work on helping companies think about the importance of building value out of natural capital, and the importance of developing a new ethic of business based in the concept of net positive contributions to human thriving. She also delves into some of the hard lessons she learned as a female professor in a male-dominated world which has influenced her own role as a force for positive and supportive mentoring. Her own account of shifting careers, taking on new problems, and always looking for a way to contribute to her community provide a sterling example of how to convert hardships into opportunities for growth. Welcome to Confluence, where our beautiful rivers are conduits to distant enterprise and adventure. I'm reading today from Henry David Thoreau, a week on the Concord and Merrimack Rivers. The sluggish artery of the Concord Meadows steals unobserved through the town, without a murmur of a pulse beat, a huge volume of matter ceaselessly rolling through the plains and valleys of the substantial earth, making haste from the high places of the earth to its ancient reservoir. The murmurs of many a famous river on the other side of the globe reach even to us here as to more distant dwellers on its banks. And I trust I may be allowed to associate our muddy but much abused Concord River with the most famous in history, the Mississippi, the Ganges, and the Nile, whose journeying atoms from the Rocky Mountains and the Himalaya have a kind of personal importance in the annals of the world. The heavens are not yet drained of their source, Rivers must have been the guides which conducted the footsteps of the first travelers. 
They are the constant lure when they flow by our doors to distant enterprise and adventure. They are the natural highways of all nations, not only leveling the ground and removing obstacles from the path of the traveler, quenching his thirst and bearing him on their bosoms, but conducting him through the most interesting scenery, the most populous portions of the globe, and where animal and vegetable kingdoms attain their greatest perfection. Thank you for joining us, Jackie. Thank you for having me. It's so great to see you in person. Of course, COVID's been hard for everyone that way. We haven't seen all of our friends, and you and I have known each other a really long time. So it's just fantastic to be able to make this uh, connection and talk again. And um, I can't tell you how happy I am. You told me that you're a fan of Henry David Thoreau. Uh, what does he mean to you as a writer? Why, why, what's the connection? For me, the writers who are naturalists who situate their work in the natural world, they always have spoken to me in some way. Um, I think growing up, being outside was such a fundamental part of my growing up that I just resonate with writers who situate their work in the outside world. And so to tell us more about that. You grew up in Idaho, and, and I mean, this passage is amazing on a lot of levels, but one level is just the river. I mean, we have that here in Missoula. We have this river that runs through it, you know, in the famous uh, book by McLean. But there's rivers all over the West that kind of anchor communities. What's your connection? Yeah, so growing up in Boise, we had the Boise River, and of course, Idaho is famous for the Frank Church River of No Return Wilderness Area that was designated a wilderness area during my time there. And it's a very iconic trip that most people growing up in Idaho take at some point. In fact, my brother still takes a 21-day uh, self-guided float trip every year down the Seaman with a group of his friends. And it's just something that when you grow up out west, floating on the rivers is part of your growing up experience. Yeah, it's part of the culture. It's threaded in. And this passage came to my mind, and, and it's, uh, got, it's resonant with what you just said. It's uh, based on a trip that Thoreau took with his brother, John, up in the White Mountains. And the the text wasn't published till 10 years later. And so what came out of it is a very Thoreauvian discussion of rivers and in a kind of philosophical sense. And I love this passage because it captures all of that, the number of ways that a river means, right? It means it's got this natural function, but it's, you know, by the end of the passage, we're in sort of metaphysical, you know, the heavens and, uh, and then, you know, we're in this practical world. It's a, it's commerce, it's exchange. Uh, it's all these other uh, components that make uh, rivers vital to human economy and human society and civilization. Yeah, the other thing that I like about this passage is it's very much grounded in what I'm doing in some of my current research, which is this idea of how um, rivers ultimately we need to take care of them because they take care of us. And it says that this is a very famous but much abused river, very yeah. much like our own Clark Fork River. Right. In 1839, right? So, uh, you know, and, and we have this local history of our much abused river. I mean, you've been here for 25 years and you know, just in our time here, I've been here 19, there's been dramatic changes. You know, we can watch it year after year getting cleaner, the dams coming out and all that comes, all the good that comes from that. Yeah. And of course, living on the rattlesnake and watching that dam come out this summer was also interesting and in seeing how they're working to repair some of the riparian areas up there. Yeah. Yeah. So the repair work, it's such a, that is a good segue kind of into your journey, and we're going to come back to kind of recent research. But tell us about your your journey. How did you end up? How did you end up a professor of marketing? Uh, what was the journey that took you there? Mm -hmm. 
Well, again, having grown up in Boise, um, I did attend Boise State University, and I had a just an amazing professor there who I just so admired his rigor and his high expectations of the student work. And I worked pretty closely with him for a long period of time. And based on that, decided to go and get a Master of Science in Marketing. And so I went to Colorado State for that. Yeah. Um, I always had a dream of working in Silicon Valley. HP is a very iconic company growing up in Boise. They had the laser printer division there during my early years. And I had an internship during college. And so when I graduated from my master's, I did move to work for HP in Silicon Valley right at a really exciting time. It was uh, 1983, which is when the personal computer was introduced as a consumer device, and it was HP's first foray into the consumer market as opposed to selling engineering workstations. Wow. So you're just right there at the ground floor. Exactly. And again, coming from Boise and moving to, um, you know, everybody now calls it the Valley, but to be there in 1983 when things were just getting started, it was a crazy period of time. And I'm, I'm really grateful I had that part of my journey. And I was just never happy living among all the wealth and the materialism and competing with, you know, six million people to go to Yosemite on the weekends. So that was already kind of a problem for you, even in, you know, in the 80s, you were already kind of sensing that sense of a crowd and the pressure of, of being around people. A hundred percent. Interesting. Yeah. And so um, I was laid off from my, my job uh, and I had already applied to go back to get a PhD. And so, you know, sometimes things happen for a reason. And so the writing was on the wall for me and it was a choice of do I stay in California to go to graduate school or I, do I go to the San Francisco of the Midwest, which <laughs> is Madison, Wisconsin, <laughs> and get my PhD there. That's a good one. I haven't heard that one before. I've heard a lot of other things about Madison, but not San Francisco of the Midwest. Well, I can it's tell also you- also one of the greener uh, <laughs> uh, capitals, you know. Yeah, well, and I have to tell you, coming from San Francisco, once I got there, there was nothing like San Francisco yeah. about it. It was the context of the Midwest, and it was a liberal city, but there yeah. was no comparison to San Francisco. Yeah, yeah, interesting. And so there you studied business, you got your PhD, but by that point, you already kind of knew you would do an academic career. In other words, you had already made a decision that that's the route you wanted to take. Yeah, again, going back to my master's years at Colorado State University, um, I was a TA there, and one of my professors unexpectedly died during the course of the semester, and somebody thought it was a good idea to ask me to take over his classes because I was probably the one most familiar with what was going on in them, even though I had no business teaching the subject matter. And I really enjoyed the experience of teaching in a way that I had never, ever considered before. And so that definitely was in the back of my mind as I moved to Silicon Valley and thought, hey, you know, more education won't hurt. I can always go back to industry, but this will open up a few more pathways for me professionally. Right. So, yeah, that's what makes business kind of interesting, right, is that that further credential doesn't sort of foreclose going back into business and working in the private sector and and then merging the two. And that's kind of where your research kind of went, right? That is your earliest phase of your career was focused on communications and especially thinking about disruptive technologies in the context of how how they get to market and how companies kind of figure out ways to take this disruptive technology out into a larger market. Yeah. In fact, in marketing, we have a, a sub-discipline that's called go-to-market strategies. And so when I was working on my dissertation research at the University of Wisconsin, 
I had family friends who worked at IBM, and they funded my dissertation research because at the time, again, think back to the late 1980s, if you could, um, IBM was making a huge shift in product strategy in order to enter the personal computer market. And when you're selling $300,000 mainframes compared to $3,000 PCs, you have to change your go-to-market strategy because yeah. you, you know it's not profitable otherwise. So IBM actually funded my dissertation research to understand what would be the issues they faced as they decided to totally fundamentally rethink their go-to-market strategy from the IBM big blue sales reps to going through independent retailers throughout the country. And it was really a remarkable opportunity for a doctoral student to have that kind of a database to work on. It's an amazing opportunity. And, and I think um, I'm fascinated about this from the standpoint of kind of the conceptual underpinnings of innovation. So that, you know, you're in an industry that's changing rapidly, always changing rapidly, right? So what's driving that innovation is new ideas within engineering and in the subtext of you know semiconductor production and Moore's law, right? That there's all these pressures in the technology side. But what, I mean, I guess I want to ask this as a question, you know, what does a marketing professor bring to the table that's a kind of different way of thinking about that same set of problems? And what are the kind of concepts and theories that underpin it? Yeah, that's a really great question, especially because in technology and disruptive innovation, we often do think of the technological underpinnings that drive those inventions. And that's certainly critically important. And we see that today with a bunch of new technologies coming down the pike in terms of quantum computing and biomaterials and foundries for um, rethinking the way we uh, build and develop medicines, for example. And the fact is a marketing perspective is critically important because marketing reflects the needs of the marketplace and what customers need and want and are willing to pay for. And that includes not only consumer marketers, of course, people who are gonna be selling products to you or me, but more importantly, business customers. And those business customers have huge risks on the table every time they change the approach to doing business. And companies don't have a huge appetite for risk. And that um, pragmatic orientation towards how will this technology help me run my business better is a huge barrier because they don't see the technological benefits. They just want the business benefits. Yeah. So the trade-off there for a new technology could be huge. It could be changing all of their practices soup to nuts. And so they need to see what that payoff is going to be. They need to know what it is. More importantly, it's the sale of technology to business customers where the real opportunities frequently are, but those businesses face a lot of barriers to changing the way they do business. And they want to know in advance if the technology that they're going to be purchasing is actually going to help them either make more money or save more money. It's not the technological properties alone that are appealing to more pragmatic business adopters. Yeah, and, and I, I find it fascinating that your work recently has kind of been taking that model, but shifting it into sort of environmental theory. And, and I want to drill down on this because I think it's fascinating conceptually that on the one hand, you just said sort of businesses are conservative. So are humans, right? Most humans are not wanting to change their fundamental behaviors um, without a huge incentive to do so. And that's where we find ourselves with environmental change. It's very hard to sell a broad public on the need. Um, so how has your, I mean, I, I kind of want to ask this two different ways, sort of 
how's your research shifted in this area? What drove that shift? And and what is it like to do that work here at Montana in particular? Um, you know, on Confluence, we really like to talk about interdisciplinary collaboration. I know that's been really, really important to the shift in your own work. Yeah, sure. So uh, about 10 years ago now, um, 2010, I was working on the third edition of my book on marketing of high technology products and innovations. And I'll just be really honest, my heart wasn't in it. <laughs> and I just- The first two editions, your heart was in it, but number three. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was hard to get motivated. And some of it was the concerns that I had personally about seeing how our climate was changing. And again, this was early in that process. And my recognition that business was a major culprit in the problems that we were facing. And as a marketing professor, there's all this pressure to engage in tactics that, you know, grow revenue without concern or disregard for the environmental impacts. And I was becoming increasingly uncomfortable with that in living my own values as somebody who likes to get out into nature and really believes that we have to live in harmony with nature as a human species. And so I decided in the third edition of my book, uh, and I had to convince my co-authors to go along with this, that all the examples we would use would be in the service of technology and innovation for either social or environmental benefit. And so we premiered some really early technologies that now people take sort of for granted. So for one thing, we looked at life straws, which are water filtration devices for people to use where they can't afford to have clean drinking water. That's a pretty common device now, you know, 10 years later. And at that time, I decided I would build some bridges across campus. We have a top-notch forestry program, biology program, a wildlife biology, and I just felt like business should not be separate from that research that's happening on this world-class campus. And so I spent a lot of time um, having coffee during my sabbatical with different scholars on campus and asking them questions about how did change happen in their disciplines and what were the barriers to getting better solutions to things like polluted rivers in place on the ground. And that led to just really delightful collaborations on the Clark Fork River to bring more of an innovation perspective to why is it so hard to get this work done on the ground? That's fascinating. So so that there those coffee, I'm really, you know, curious about how those kinds of conversations go down. Because I think part of uh, what we try to do on Confluence actually is sort of elevate um, what a good intellectual ecosystem looks and feels like, right? Um, a lot of us work in our offices and work on our publications, but a lot of the magic happens actually over coffee and in situations where you want something from them and, and they may not know it, but they're eventually going to get something back from you, right? So could you kind of drill down into one of those connections that you made with a professor and how it kind of worked out? Yeah. So one of the first coffees that I had was with Rick Hauer. He is... Um, trying to think the best way to describe his research. He uses airplanes to fly over wilderness areas using a type of radar, I think it's called LIDAR, to actually measure ecological attributes. And so he's pretty high tech, yeah. which speaks right away to me. Yeah. Um, and he was starting a new program called the Systems Ecology Program, which was designed to be both a depth program in terms of a scientific area, for example, you know, aquatic ecology or something, 
but also a breadth program where the students who were trained in that field could understand the context in which those barriers would be surfaced to change on the ground. So that could include science communication, journalism, legal issues around you know endangered species, business, for example, because yeah. the business context, the spending on restoration to improve degraded areas is in the billions of dollars. And so to me, it's a fundamental business problem as much as anything. And so he was so warm and welcoming and invited me to present my research on innovation and how it might change the lens, the way that ecologists were looking at barriers to changing the way ecology was practiced on the ground. And based on my presenting my research, people were really eager to learn more about how marketers look at behavior change and how different strategies we use in business could actually drive behavior change in contexts other than buying and selling products. Yeah, and the behavior change part of business, I think, is a, a super important thing for the broad listener and broad public to know about that so much of the research is actually grounded in sort of behavioral psychology, you know, business, you know, there are certain uh, fields that are kind of like that is a meta discipline, it can draw on a lot of different theoretical underpinnings, but but for marketing in particular, that's behavioral psychology, it's, you know, what people want, what are their desires, and how do we understand those desires. And um, sometimes the market gives us really clear information about that. Sometimes it doesn't, right? Sometimes you have to shift the market too. And, and when there are values that aren't, let's say, endogenous to business, you got to bring them in and make it a part of that. So that's part of your work. Your Part of your work is uh, valuation of natural resources. Can you talk a little bit about how that interfaces with behavioral change? Like what are we trying to accomplish by getting the broad public to think about putting a value on natural resources? Absolutely. So um, interestingly, yesterday in my class, we were talking about why isn't business doing a better job of using artificial intelligence to help identify patterns in consumer behavior, which is kind of a classic marketing problem. But the uh, guest speaker I had, his name is Christopher Penn. He runs a, a company called Trusted Insights, and we're using his book this semester called AI for Marketers. And in the course of that conversation, he said, the fact is accounting decisions rule the company because everything at the end of the day depends on how a company reports its profitability to its shareholders. And that's true even for nonprofit non organizations. They still have an executive board that they have to show the bottom line. It's true for private companies, family-owned companies. And to me, I jumped in and I said, that resonates so strongly because my research on companies who want to do better by the environment in terms of bringing sustainable innovations to the market that actually are less polluting and more environmentally friendly, if they don't pencil out from an accounting perspective, it doesn't matter how brilliant they are. Right. And so that led to a research project with a student of mine to study why don't companies actually account for their impacts and dependencies on nature? They have to report uh, risk mitigation strategies to their investors. Mm. The biggest risk they face right now is- Environmental degradation. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Climate change, which is gonna disrupt business and supply chains and yeah. Yeah, and so we're seeing that increasingly in the investor community, but we're not seeing it in the strategic decisions that companies are making about what they're doing. And as a result, um, I partnered with an organization called the Capitals Coalition, 
In business, we talk about human capital, financial capital, physical assets as capital. Well, there's this thing called natural capital. All forms of capital can have a valuation put on them that is in monetary terms, dollars and cents. And so Carmen and I studied 20 top companies around the world uh, from a sustainability perspective, talked to their finance directors, sustainability directors, just it's a small world sort of moment, but the sustainability director of the Caring Corporation that makes Puma and Gucci was one of my students at the University of Colorado in Boulder. Wow. And so calling, you know, the chief sustainability officer and finding we had that connection was just mind-blowing to me. But we interviewed these people and we said, we know sustainability is important to you. What are the barriers you're facing in getting those metrics put on your financial and accounting books? And they pretty much said, until it's required, it's a nice to have thing. Mm. And so accounting runs the show. And I feel like we need more forward looking mandates around what is required for companies to report. Well, and that's a great segue into um, this concept of net positive, which has now become quite current. You know, uh, it's it's uh, topical in any number of ways. I mean, Glasgow um, is, I guess it is still technically ongoing. When this gets released, it will be long in the uh, rearview mirror. But, um, you know, there's a lot of talk about shifting our rhetorical and conceptual understanding from net zero, which is really about carbon, right? It's about carbon neutrality to this notion of net positive. What are the restorative uh, things we need to do for the environment, but also more broadly, um, and here I'm thinking about this book um, that Paul Pullman and Andrew Winston wrote, Net Positive, which is globally, what does the business contribute to human well-being? So part of that is gonna be the environment and that's the area you're working in, but it's this broader sort of default switch. We're trying to sh switch our understanding to not just getting a kind of negative conception of dropping carbon emission, but a positive conception of what business can do to sort of promote positive values. Talk a little bit about what that shift is all about and what where it's accomplishing that goal and where it's not. Yeah, that's a great question. And from my perspective, forward-looking businesses set an aggressive goal to be carbon neutral a decade ago. And those innovators and leaders in the space are now forging new ground to actually be restorative or regenerative to the environments in which they operate. And I just want to say that while all these companies who attended the uh, COP26 in Glasgow are trying and governments are trying to set uh, ambitious goals to be net zero by 2050. It's like, that is too late. They should be setting a near-term goal for 2030, 2020, yeah. 2025 yeah. Yeah. and getting after it. And so while those companies are still trying to figure out how to be net zero, the leaders are moving to what's called net positive. So here in town, as you know, we have the Biomimicry Institute, which is a nonprofit organization and the consulting arm Biomimicry 3.8. They actually have a consulting practice that's focused on working with the largest companies in the world to help them develop what are called environmental performance standards, where they measure how much clean water will be, we be returning after we build a factory that takes up you know, what previously was farmland or forest land. What are we going to be doing to actually purify the air so that we leave it cleaner than when we took it into our facility? And it, an example of this type of thinking is Interface Floor. They actually have built uh, a factory that functions like a forest. 
And this idea of thinking of being in harmony with the natural world and being part of it, again, we can put a dollar and cents value on those things, but it requires a different sensibility than most business people have, where they've always viewed nature as a source of extractive inputs that will help them run their business, and they're free. There are no externalities that they have to be responsible for. So this idea of net positive is really changing the equation so that companies think more proactively about leaving the world in a better place than what they found it. And this is just so consistent with the way we think in the West. When we go backpacking, we always think about leaving your campsite cleaner when you leave than when you found it. And so to ask business to kind of uh, be grounded in the local, even while there are these global businesses, is a fundamental change that I think will come. But as you said, people are inherently risk averse and we're so used to the status quo. And when we think about the fundamental philosophical mind shift that is required to reconceptualize this, it is drastic. Yeah, it's drastic and it's hard to accomplish across a massive population. And I think that's one of the things Pullman and Winston talk about is um, how important the hearts and minds side of it is for the leadership. And you just spoke to that as well, that it, t it takes a sort of concept shift, but it also takes at some point massive shifts of the, the fuller population, that our consumers need to be educated and aware of how that externality of the environment needs to be built into their prices. And if that means higher prices for XYZ product, they need to be educated that that's actually not a higher price, that's just capturing the, the true cost right, that, that has otherwise been externalized. So these are big issues, and it seems like marketing is a kind of key mechanism to, to bridge that gap between what you would say is, you know, innovative cutting edge companies that are making this important, but this broader consumer market. Definitely marketing plays a really big role there in terms of recalibrating what we take to be kind of um, normal or expected. In fact, at its simplest level, marketing is about setting expectations. Yeah. And if we can think effectively about so much of the work that's being done right now in behavioral economics about messaging around how to promote behavior change so that people are nudged in the right path of doing the right thing as opposed to trying to you know, persuade them or um, argue with them. I mean, it, it has to be quite subtle to be effective. Yeah, and uh, so you use that term nudge, which uh, comes out of yeah, behavioral economics. And Herbert Gintis has talked quite a bit about this. He sort of explores the evolutionary biology root of this set of questions that we also have kind of some instinctive natural altruism, but that our marketing and our, our broader consumer mechanisms don't always tap into. So it's, it's, it's largely a question of which of the two, you know, uh, like the old allegory of the two wolves, which, which wolf are you feeding? Are you feeding the consumer wolf? Or are you feeding maybe the wolf that recognizes a common stake, an altruistic stake in some of these value questions? Yeah, it's so interesting to think about a wolf having an altruistic stake. Well, they're they're communal beings. <laughs> they are. And in fact, um, I remember one of my first conversations reaching out across campus was after a lecture that Ray Calloway had given about how nature is red in tooth and claw, and it was a Kropotkin-like approach. And I kind of said, is that always true? And if that's true, then what about, you know, being in harmony with nature? And what does that really look like? And we kind of forged a, a long-term friendship and, again, another research project based on 
a simple conversation after I heard him lecture when I was trying to build these bridges across campus. Yeah. So I do think that as we nudge consumers to, you know, do I want the materialistic side of life or do I, am I open to learning about a different way? I think talking about that today, the day before Thanksgiving is really important because Thanksgiving is not Thanksgiving for a lot of people now. It's Black Friday. Right, right. And it's been totally you know, kind of hijacked in some yeah, way by yeah. the urge to make sure that the Christmas holiday spending makes everybody profitable from a business perspective. It's just like, how crazy is that? Yeah, notwithstanding, it has to be said, the native view of Thanksgiving, right? Which is a <laughs> whole nother issue about, uh, you know, whether we are true to that set of values. But gratitude, yeah, it's, it's a, it's gratitude and generosity uh, as values. There are a lot of Americans who can accept Thanksgiving as a, um, uh, you know, uh, it, it both good and bad, right? That it that it can accomplish both. But I think what you're talking about is this sort of gobbling up of it, pun intended, uh, <laughs> of this whole other consumer model that it's it, that that has invaded almost every aspect of of our lives. Yeah, we can say no to that. We can. And I was having a conversation yesterday, in fact, with a colleague of mine in Australia. And he's always very curious about our American traditions and holidays. And he said, is Thanksgiving pagan in some way? (laughs) I said, actually, what I recall as a child is the origins were really more around the uh, settlers who came and how the Native Americans helped them survive that first horse period of time. and got them through. Yeah. Yeah. And so we kind of went back to some of the issues around crazy, you know, Columbus discovering, quote unquote, America. And, you know, he's just really curious about how we as white people in America reconcile all of this. And so I, I just think the philosophy of understanding what we do as society and how business drives what we do as society and what we take for granted about that and how business could actually drive a whole different value system if they thought that it would be profitable. Right, right. And that that bottom line again, going back to the accounting, is kind of the key thing, I think. Yeah, yeah, that's excellent. Well, uh, part of what we do um, on Confluence also is, uh, uh, you know, you've told your journey about how you became a professor, but you hit some bumps on the road. You just, you told us about um, being laid off, right, as one of the triggers. And we, we use this idea of the CV of failures because um, one of the things we're trying to do is destigmatize discussions, especially among graduate students who might be experiencing imposter syndrome. They might have that feeling, which many of us had ourselves when we were in grad school, that we don't belong, that, that everyone's smarter than we are. Um, and I think you have a great story to tell about that. And I think especially, I want to say, because you won't say it, but, um, you know, 2008, you were named Regents Professor. So the end of that story is this incredible accomplishment, right? Being elevated to the highest um, rank that you can as a professor. So tell us a little bit about your bumps on the road. Yeah, certainly. My first job after getting my PhD was at the University of Colorado Boulder. And um, I was so excited to get back to the West again after doing my years in the Midwest. Um, But it was a pretty tough environment for uh, a woman, just Mm -hmm. I'll be really honest. Um, There was quite a bit of um, sexual-based harassment and discrimination. And in fact, um, the third year that I was there, an external consultant was brought in to the university as a whole Every female professor 
was asked to benchmark herself against a male counterpart who had been there the same number of years, had comparable teaching evaluations and comparable research records. And after three years at CU Boulder, I was already 15% behind my next uh, male peer who was hired three years ago, newly minted PhD, teaching evaluations, superb, research records, superb. I had already fallen 15% behind. Salary. Yeah. yeah. And so it just is an example of the um, environment I was working in. Also, as a woman, uh, during your pre-tenure period, it also happens to be when many women are, their biological clock is ticking. I had two children in Boulder during my pre-tenure period. And as a result, when I did go up for tenure, I had asked for a delay on my tenure clock, which is pretty common academically for parental leave, but I was denied that. And so um, when I went up for tenure, uh, the university did deny me tenure. And at the same time, I think they were quite anxious about the perception that perhaps I was being treated unfairly. And as a result, rather than technically having me denied tenure, they said that they would put me up again in a couple years, like retroactively giving me the, the delay on my tenure clock I had asked for. Mm. But I made a decision that I didn't want to work at that place anymore, even mm. though it hurt me deeply because I'm somebody who I believe in excellence and I feel like merit is always recognized. And in that environment, it, it just was, wasn't the case. No. Yeah. And I was spending so much emotional energy fighting my battles at work. And I had these two little ones at home that I wanted to be pouring my emotional energy into them. Mm. And so I did make the decision to leave rather than go up for tenure again in a year or two, particularly because when that letter came in, I was actually on a maternity leave. It, it just seemed nonsensical to me. Yeah. And so it's hard to talk about not getting tenure. It's like a a deep, dark kind of wound, even though I don't feel like it was fair and that somehow I was not good enough. Um, it was a horrible period sure, in my course. life. Yeah. yeah. I mean, only in retrospect can you kind of rationalize it, but, but you can obviously, I can see it. You can, <laughs> you can go back to that place yeah. and feel it. And it's such a powerful story to tell. Um, you know, obviously there's been progress and there's been a lot of change in some fundamental policies, but just this we have a much more flexible notion of what an academic career ought to look like or can look like, I think. And I think that's not everywhere, but it's it's moving in the right direction and sort of recognizing the importance of honoring people's life paths and their life choices and recognizing that productivity is about a whole career. It's not about that little narrow bottleneck around tenure, right? It's about generating scholars that are going to keep working hard and keep doing innovative, interesting things their whole careers. Yeah, and from my perspective, it was just such a brutal thing to sort of be forced out is how it felt, um, even though it was my choice to leave and not go through that again. But it's almost cliche to say that this has been an environment where my career has totally taken off, and it never would have at CU Boulder because I was constantly having to justify why my work was worthy. Yeah. Spending and, all of your energy on this non-productive side of it rather than just doing your work. Yeah. And so I never would have written my book if I was at CU Boulder. You know, that has just opened so many doors for me. 
I wouldn't have done the cross-disciplinary collaboration because it wasn't valued at that place. Um, I feel like for me, it was the best thing that happened to me in hindsight was yeah. to not get tenure there. Yeah. Seriously. And that's and that's part of the reason why we bring these up is it's just, you know, communicate to our graduate students, you know, that your path may take some some turns, right? But you never know if you and especially if you focus on your values and focus on, you know, what matters to you, what you're really trying to achieve, that you know, you can keep moving through and find a different path. And so great segue into what are you looking for in a graduate student? What 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 jumps out at you when you're when you're working with them? What what kinds of paths do you hope that they'll pursue? What do you want to see them do? Yeah, that's a great question too. Um, I tend to really be attracted to graduate students who really have kind of a different life path because they tend to have a broader base of experience. And I find, uh, and I'll use some examples here. They bring a, a more complex value system to the types of questions that they want to study. Mm. And business does tend to be a little bit narrow. And people who come to business think that it is, you know, all about, you know, one thing, which is making money. Profit, yeah. And so for me to work with graduate students who really want to explore how can business uh, engage in regenerative agriculture and what does that look like? How can we use knowledge of biology to change the way business operates? Um, how can we integrate music and creativity with the rigid hierarchy of the business world? Um, those kinds of students bring such interesting thought processes, questions, and values to the work that that's something that right away appeals to me. And when we get uh, graduate assistants in the business school, our graduate director kind of knows the kind of connections that will allow me to help that student achieve their full potential as opposed to try to do the round peg square hole kind of thing. Yeah. And what, what distinguishes graduate education and business from undergrad? What, what kinds of things are you hoping that, you know, developmentally, intellectually, they're going to do that kind of differ? Yeah, so typically as an undergrad, we're teaching students a body of knowledge about how to do things in business, like what is the received knowledge or the frameworks that you would use to make certain decisions. As a graduate student, we really want them to be able to think more strategically about what is the right question we should even be addressing in the first place. And what is the role of values and ethics in guiding what question we're even asking? Um, I think methodologically, having really good method skills about what data can you rely on to actually inform the decision you want to make and what are the strengths and weaknesses of the data that you have in hand. Um, increasingly, business is relying on data science and data analytics to inform good decisions, and our students have to have this data literacy that goes far beyond simply, you know, looking at statistics and understanding a confidence interval or something like this, but to actually think algorithmically. Yeah, yeah. And so it's not an easy thing for students who um, come from a more conceptual mindset to really train their brain to look at those problems from a different kind of um, methodological lens. Yeah, excellent. And and I, I think um, your program has had some success. Obviously, most of your students are going to be 
going into business. I mean, they're going to be completing their MBAs and going off into business, but some of them kind of head off in the academic path as well. You've had some success in that area as well. Mm -hmm. Definitely. So my goal when I work with graduate students is to really identify what are the values that drive a student in terms of what meaning means in their life. What are their passions? For some of them, it does mean going to work in the largest corporations and playing a leadership role. For others, it means going into the nonprofit world and making sure that those nonprofits take advantage of the most cutting edge business tools that they have to achieve their mission. And for some of those students, it does mean going on to get a PhD and figuring out how can they impart their own knowledge and wisdom to the next generation of students that they will then become the mentors for. And I think those relationships that you have with the students, um, particularly those that aren't sure where their paths are going to lead to be really open to options and values clarification because I think a lot of people want to reinvent graduate students kind of in their own vision, kind of right. like parents want to do to their kids. Yeah. And that we take a lot of pride as faculty when our students achieve according to our definition of achievement. And just being really open that that looks different for everybody is just so important. And yeah, crucial. Yeah. I, I think I've found that most of the graduate mentors across campus that are most known for their mentorship have that latter attitude. They're, they're not trying to replicate themselves. They're trying to, and in fact, they're learning more in some ways from the graduate students than, than they're giving, you know, at the, at the back end, especially when we're producing PhDs, you know, our PhDs are breaking into new ground. You know, they're, they're, they're teaching our faculty something. Yeah. A hundred percent. Fantastic. Well, um, we end every episode the same way. It's our quick hitters. You ready for them? I am. I'm so excited. Morning or night person? Definitely morning. Western or Eastern Montana? Definitely Western. That's pretty definitive. Not to offend anyone out there in Billings. It's the mountains. It, yeah, you know, yeah. yeah, it's like the Eastern Montana just starts to feel like the Midwest to me, even though anybody out there is gonna say, definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> What's your favorite mountain range? The Bitterroots. Those are beautiful. Uh, Yellowstone or Glacier? Definitely Glacier. Why? Uh, we have a little cabin up there. Mm. Uh, it's a timeshare. We only go once a week, but we have made so many memories because we're totally off the grid for a week with our kids. And the minute you don't have Wi-Fi, life changes as a family. Absolutely. Winter or summer? Uh, oh, that's a tough one. I love Good skiing. things in both. Yeah, I love skiing, but I do love summer. Sunrise or sunset? Definitely sunset. Why is that? Uh, there's something about the coolness of the evening, especially on the Rattlesnake Creek where our house is, that is just, I don't know, it's a sensory experience. Um, I can't even describe it. So I don't even have to ask you what your favorite Montana river is. It's the Rattlesnake. Yeah, we live right there. And just the beauty of the seasons, whether it's ice on the river or the gushing of the springtime and listening to it or the mellow summer and taking our little grandbaby out to wade in the water. I yeah. mean, honestly, it's every season is beautiful. And there's something about living on a river where you become a close observer of it. You know, you see it every day and all of its different lighting and, and the, the subtle changes that come from that. There's a kind of, yeah, yeah, inspiring kind of almost artistic sense of being 
you know, close connection to a river. Yeah. And for me, it's also I feel like my life is really busy. Our lives are always on the go, very frenetic. And there's something about being on the river that just slows me down. Mm -hmm. And that being present is so important. And I, it, I, it's easier to grab hold of that by the river. Mm -hmm. That's good. What's the one piece of music you could listen to for all eternity? Yeah, so uh, this is really interesting. Um, I have very eclectic music taste, but I've always loved piano. And Eric Satie has this amazingly, uh, it's kind of the, the mood of the river again. I can just lose myself in it and be present. Um, it's very moody, deep music, and I love it. All right. We'll put a We'll put a link in the show notes. Yeah, definitely. What's the last voice you hear when you go to sleep at night? Oh my God, I just said that I need to be in the moment, but I'm always making lists about <laughs> what I didn't get done and what I forgot to do. And especially in the night, I do some of my best problem solving while I'm sleeping. I'll wake up in the morning and something that I didn't know wasn't working is solved in my brain. So clearly I'm very active when I go to sleep. And you're putting a pen by the side of your bed and writing it immediately? Or are you jumping to a computer? I've tried to not do that anymore. Mm. Um, but I do spend about half an hour in the morning just listening to myself before I get into the flow of the day. Very smart. Thank you so much for joining us on Confluence, Jackie. Uh, it's been my pleasure. I think that the deep reflection you ask of people, um, I've learned so much from listening to the other interviews. So thank you. Thank you very much. If you like what you've heard, you've got Cole Grant to thank. He's a student in our MFA program in media arts, and his editing touch makes all of this sound flow. Confluence is brought to you by the Graduate School of the University of Montana. Innovation, imagination, and intellect to serve the state, the region, and the world. We'd like to thank UM's College of Business for support and production of this episode which we recorded in Studio 49 of the Gallagher Business Building. You can subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, and Google by searching Confluence University of Montana, or click a link at the Confluence website, umt.edu grad. On the Telling Our Story tab, you'll find podcasts, videos, and other media that help us share with the world the groundbreaking research and creativity happening at the University of Montana. Enjoy the float.